A few years ago, some of you may have heard this story before, but a few years ago, Trish and I went out on a date night. And, uh, and it was a day where I was not in a very good mood, and it just progressively got worse through the night. Um, we started out trying to figure out what restaurant do we want to go to. And uh, I wanted to go to a Mexican place, and Trish is like, let's go someplace nicer. I'm like, all right, I guess we'll go someplace nicer. So as a good husband, I'm like, we'll go to the place you want to go to. So we get there, you know, we, we get out, I open the door for her, we sit down, I do all the things that husbands are supposed to do, and I am just getting more and more frustrated. I know you've never experienced this, but I have. And I'm sitting there, and Trish is like, oh, look at the beautiful sunlight coming in, and I'm like... That's giving me a headache. It's horrible. And, uh, and the music was this, this soft, uh, instrumental Kenny G, boys to men, weird stuff. Um, we got these dinner rolls that, to me, I think are stale, but they're called hard rolls. And, uh, I just don't care for them. And then, and then at, before we're about ready, and this is, this is the kicker, before we were ready to order our appetizer or thing that comes before the meal, um, the people, if you don't know, the people next to us say to the waiter, boy, this chicken noodle soup is really salty. And the waiter looks at them and says, yeah, it gets that way after a couple of days. And we're just sitting there. And so I'm just getting more and more like, what are we doing? And I'm just so frustrated and so mad. And I'm trying to do all the good things that a husband does, but... You know, I, while we were there, um, in my frustration, when I get mad, I don't start yelling. I don't start screaming. I just shut down, right? Your mom says, if you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all, right? So I don't say anything at all. And just in case you didn't know, that's not a good date um, to have somebody that doesn't talk. And so I'm there not saying anything. And Trisha finally looks at me and says, Dan, I just want to be cherished. I just want to be cherished. You know, I think in our Christian life, many times we do all the duties, all the things we're supposed to do. We go to church, we read the Bible, we pray, we go to community group, give money, whatever it is, and our hearts are far from God. We don't cherish Him. And to God, this is absolutely offensive and wicked. Jesus talks about this in Matthew 15, and he says this, You hypocrites! Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. The people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. And so today, we're going to see a prayer from Paul, a prayer that they would not just honor God with their lips, that they would not just honor God with their actions, but that they would honor God with their heart, that they would cherish the God of the universe. Because we can do all the right things for all the wrong reasons, and it is absolutely offensive to God. And so if you would open up to Ephesians chapter 1, it's page 976 in the Red Bible, if that's the one that you are in. And today we're going to look at this prayer from Paul. For the Ephesians, Paul was their mentor. He had come, he had planted the church in Ephesus, he had moved on. He's in a Roman prison writing this letter, and he writes this to them to encourage them, to pray for them, that they would be freed from apathy, 
that they would be freed from begrudging submission, and that they would be freed to a delight and cherishment of God. And so let's read together Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15 through 23. For this reason, I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him. Having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? According to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he puts all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Let's pray. Lord, we come this morning confessing to you that we have all been there. We have all done the duties that you call us to. We've all done good things for people without the heart of love towards you, God. And we recognize that that is sad. It's perverted. It's twisted. It's wrong. And we pray this morning that you would free us from that, God, that our delight, not just this morning, but throughout the week, would be in you and that our obedience would not be begrudging submission, but in beautiful act of worship towards you. Help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would look back with me at verse 17 and 18, and we're going to kind of hover on these verses for a little bit, but I want to remind you that Paul is writing this letter specifically to Christians, to the saints, to people who trust in Jesus Christ. And he prays this in verse 17. That the, Lord, that, God, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened. It's interesting because Paul starts out by saying, I pray that God, by his mercy, by his grace, would show you more of himself, would increase your knowledge and your wisdom. See, what Paul understands is that anything that we understand about God, anything that we understand about his glory and his love and his majesty, everything we understand is a gift from God. That we in our own being cannot understand God without his interceding mercy into our lives. You see, what we tend to do is we tend to make a God that fits us, right? We make a God that will uh, make okay the idols in our life. We, we read the scriptures in a way like Americans read it. We can't help it. It happens. And we need God to intercede to show us what are the things in our life that are st- coming between us and him. And who is God that we should worship him? 
And to be honest with you, as we go through the scriptures and we sometimes read them with our own blinders, we create a God that's not nearly as good as the one in the Bible. To be honest with you, we can't create a God better than the one we see in the scriptures. And I think we've seen that the last few weeks, but we'll see it especially today, how good God is. And so Paul prays that God would reveal himself to them, that he would give them knowledge of himself, that he would redeem their knowledge. And then Paul goes on to pray that they would grow in a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Now, there are kind of two ways that Paul is asking for God to grow their knowledge. First, you see, he prays that they would grow in a spirit of wisdom. This term means an intellectual knowledge, that they would better understand who God is, the truths of God, the doctrines of God. And in essence, Paul is actually praying that they would grow in their theology. I know that many times that's a bad word, but for Paul, he's saying, I pray that your intellectual knowledge would grow more and more in understanding the goodness and the greatness of God. And we do that through reading his word through the Holy Spirit applying it to us, helping us to understand it. And so he prays that they would grow in their doctrine. But then he goes on and he also prays for a spirit of revelation and the knowledge of him. This is an experiential knowledge. This term is used to talk about someone who's being fully exposed, fully known, someone you intimately know. And so, for example, in the Old Testament, there are passages that are written where um, actually, I'll just read it to you. Genesis 4.1. Now, Adam knew, his, knew Eve, his wife, and as a result, she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Now, if you know anything about babies, this word know doesn't mean I knew about Adam, right? He didn't know about his wife. To know is the most intimate form of relationship, of experience that's expressed in the Bible. And so when Paul is writing that they would grow, that they would grow in wisdom and revelation, he's praying that they would grow in an intellectual knowledge of God, but also an experiential knowledge of God, that they would experience him like a husband experiences his wife, that he would know her intimately, that we would know God intimately. And as we look at this, something we see is that there are kind of two errors that Christians have. Uh, And both lead to apathy, both lead to stagnancy. One is this, knowing about God intellectually without knowing about God experientially. Okay, Um, And so what happens is people gain this great understanding of doctrine, of the Bible, but they're completely unpassionate for God because it all remains in their head. This is actually becomes, where I see this happening the most is among uh, kids, high schoolers, and older people. They know all the answers. They're always right. They can always give you a Bible verse, but they're completely impassionate towards Jesus Christ because he is just this intellectual knowledge. It's kind of like a couple who had been married for 40 years who know a lot about each other but never experience one another, right? And so that's kind of what he's saying. If this is all you have is this intellectual understanding where you know God, excuse me, that you know about God, but you don't really know God, 
then you're going to suffer in this life of apathy because you never really experience the love and mercy and grace of God on a daily basis. And so one error is to know God intellectually without knowing him experientially, experiencing him. The second is knowing God experientially, experiencing him without knowing about God intellectually. And this is usually an issue that is dealt with by people in those middle generations, like college students and young adults, where it's all we need to do is love Jesus. All we need to do is serve Jesus. It doesn't matter, you know, what the Bible says a whole lot. We just need to love Jesus. Theology is really not that important. And what happens is that their faith actually becomes very shallow. And their whole faith is based on this emotional response to God. And so when that emotion isn't there, their faith is in crisis because they don't have the theological undergirding of the scriptures that tell us that things are true, whether we feel them or not. This would kind of be like a couple who dates for 40 days, right? They're not married 40 years. They date 40 days. They know nothing about each other intellectually, really. But they have this strong emotional connection. They experience each other. But if the intellectual part of it doesn't grow, if you don't understand that person more and more, the relationships get shallow and it gets void and it gets apathetic. And so the solution that God gives is that you must intellectually but also experientially know him in both ways. Know him in your head, know him in your heart. And what the next verse, verse 18, tells us is that wisdom, intellectual knowledge, and revelation, experiential knowledge, opens the eyes of our hearts. And it draws us to love him more. And so both of those are really important for us to grow in. It's important for us to grow in our understanding of God by reading his word, by praying, Lord, help me understand your word. But it's also important to experience God personally, firsthand. As you walk through the trials of life saying, Lord, this is an opportunity for me to experience you, to experience your power, to experience your love, to experience your grace. When I was... uh, just out of college, I went on staff with a ministry called Young Life. And there's a lot of young staff people, and they sent us to the staff training out in Oregon. And I remember being out there, and all these people were really excited about Jesus, uh, didn't know much about the Bible, but were excited about Jesus. And I just thought to myself, man, this seems really kind of shallow. And so this man comes up on stage to talk to us, and he said, this, which is seared into my mind. He said, he, he was an older gentleman. He said, your generation has a lot to teach my generation about passion and worship. But my generation has a lot to teach your generation about truth. Because when emotion wears off, truth stands. I thought, yes. That's exactly what I've try, been trying to understand. He's saying the exact same thing that Paul is saying, that we can't just know God in our head. We can't just know God in our heart. We have to know God with both. And that breeds this love and passion for God. And so Paul prays that our affections will be stirred towards God, that we would fall more in love with him. And he looks in this passage and he says, prays explicitly, three things that he wishes for our knowledge to grow in. He prays that our knowledge would grow in the hope of God, in the treasure of God, 
and in the power of God. And those are the three things we're going to look at here. First, he prays that our knowledge would grow in the hope of God. Look in verse 18 with me. He says, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Why? That you may know what is the hope to which you have been called. And so Paul says, for you to know God, you need to know the hope of God. See, hope is a word that is used in a lot of different contexts. I think for me, I usually use it in something that's pretty uncertain, right? Like I would say, man, I hope the Packers win today, right? Sorry, Don. I hope the Packers win today. And that's uncertain, right? We don't, we don't know if it's going to happen or if it's not going to happen. But when Paul talks about hope, he talks about what Hebrews says is a certain hope. Titus says it's a blessed hope. First Peter says it is a living hope. And so Paul says you must know this hope both in your head but also in your heart. And so what is this hope that Paul is talking about? This hope is the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, that although we have not cherished God like we should, that God took his son, the one that he most cherished, and sent him to earth to come and live the life we should have lived, died the death we should have died, that once again we could be cherished by the God of the universe. And so this is the hope that we have. And Paul tells them, you need to grow in this hope. Grow in the assurance that you will be raised from the dead and you will live with the God of the universe for all eternity. Hope is a future thought that we will be with the one who treasures us forever and ever. And that should transform how we live today. There's a story of a man named Philip Henry. He's the son of a guy named Matthew Henry, if you've ever heard of him. And he grew up, I'm not sure where he grew up, but he grew up in a societal system that had different classes. And he was in a lower class of society. And he fell in love with this girl who was in a higher class of society. Now, typically, these girls would never go for a guy in a lower class because he really didn't have much to offer her in terms of worldly riches or fame or popularity. But this girl was a Christian and her heart had been changed and she fell in love with this man, Philip Henry. And when it was time for her to introduce her parents to Philip, she was absolutely afraid because she knew that the social system said that this was unallowable. And so she brings Philip, she introduces him to her parents. After he leaves, they say this. They say, this man, Philip Henry, where has he come from? And her response was this. I love it. She says, I don't know where he has come from, but I know where he is going. You see, this girl was so much more impressed by the hope that God offered through Jesus Christ. She wanted a man that would not just give her riches in this earth, but would experience riches with her for all eternity. And so Paul says, I hope you grow in the knowledge of the hope of God, the resurrection of living with God for all eternity. He goes on to say that he prays that we would know the inheritance of God. Verse 18, again, the second part. That we would know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. 
his glorious inheritance in the saint. Now, last week we talked about our inheritance. Do you remember? Everything that we have because of our union with Jesus Christ, because we are united with Jesus Christ, that everything is true of Jesus is true of us. That we get all the benefits that Jesus has won on our behalf. And so some of those, I'll just say, we've learned that some of the riches we have in Christ is that we are saints, we are faithful, we are graced, we are at peace with God, we are holy and blameless in God's sight, we are adopted as God's children, we are blessed with God's pursuing love, we are redeemed, we are forgiven, we are made wise unto salvation, and we are believing by faith. And these are riches that God has given to us in Christ. But in this passage, it's not talking about our inheritance. It's talking about God's inheritance. Which is kind of funny, because you think, God already has everything, right? What in the world could God stand to inherit? All things already belong to him. But when you read through the scripture... You see, the one thing that God does not have that he wants and he pursues is you. It's his saints. It's his church. It says it right there in verse 18. His inheritance is the saints. And so you see, while our riches are in God, God's riches are in you. He delights in you. He loves you. He treasures you. The God of the universe, his treasure is you. I don't know, um, sometimes I, I, I share thoughts of mine and I think they might get me in trouble. This might be one of them. Um, I've actually never shared this out loud because I thought, you know, this might get me in trouble and I've never actually even shared this with my wife. So I hope that all of you are as awful as me and you think the same way, okay? Have you ever noticed when you take your kids to, like, the mall and you take them to the play area or you take them to the playground, how you just start kind of, you don't mean to, but you start comparing your kid with other kids, right? Maybe you have an, a niece or a nephew or a dog and you do the same thing, right? But, but you're watching those other kids and you're like, yeah, that kid, he's kind of slow and that kid, he's kind of funny looking. But my kid, my kid is amazing. They're beautiful. They're wonderful. They're, they're so cool. And, and you're sitting there thinking, does everyone else know that my kid is the coolest kid here? You know, or, or are they all, oh, you guys aren't laughing, so maybe I'm the only one that thinks this, all right? <laughs> starting to feel real bad. But you wonder, does everybody else know that my kid is this really amazing, wonderful kid? It doesn't matter, you know, that he has his shoes on the wrong feet, toilet papers hanging out his pants. It doesn't matter. He's the best kid here, right? This is what God thinks of you and of me. He cherishes us. We are his inheritance. We are his treasure. He loves you. He delights in you. Would that not break our apathy? Would that not break our begrudging submission and change it into opportunities to worship and love the God who treasures us? Would it not? And so Paul is is saying to them, I pray that you would know how much God treasures you, that you are his inheritance, that you are his delight. And that you would no longer submit to God through this obligation, but because you enjoy him, you love him, and you delight in him as he does in you. And so he prays that they would know his inheritance. Finally, he prays that they would know 
the power of God. Verse 19. Read along with me. And what is the immeasurable greatness of His power towards us who believe according to the working of His great might? So Paul is saying that he hopes that we know the hope of God, the inheritance of God, but also the exceeding power of God. Not just intellectually, but we would experience it in our lives. And then he goes on to give specific evidences of God's power. He kind of spends the most time here. First, he says that it is seen through Christ's resurrection. Verse 20, that he worked in Christ, the power that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. When Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, that could not have been any earthly power. It couldn't have been anything that any of us could have done. It could have only been the power of God, a power from out of this world, a miraculous power. And the reason why it's so important that Paul points to the fact that God, through his power, raised Jesus Christ from the dead is because four verses later, in Ephesians 2.1, Paul is going to say, you were dead. You were dead in your sin, in your transgressions. And the God who had the power to raise Jesus from the dead has power to raise you from the dead, spiritually and physically. You know, I love um, the Chuck Norris jokes. Uh, I don't know if all of you are aware of who Chuck Norris is, but he's pretty much awesome. And um, I'll just read you a couple of the Chuck Norris jokes. And these are just absurd. They're ridiculous. Once a cobra bit Chuck Norris's leg. After five days of excruciating pain, the cobra died. Chuck Norris can make a slinky go upstairs. Chuck Norris can kill two stones with one bird. Chuck Norris makes onions cry. When Chuck Norris enters a room, he doesn't turn the lights on. He turns the dark off. Chuck Norris doesn't do push-ups. He just pushes the ground down. Now, here's a crazy one. Here's a ridiculous one. God doesn't just make alive people dead. God makes dead people alive. It's ridiculous. It's amazing. But it's absolutely true. He makes dead people alive. He made you alive so that he could treasure you, so that he could love you, so that you could be his inheritance. And that is the power that Paul is talking about. He goes on to talk about God's power in Christ's exaltation first over the world. In verse 20, look with me, the second half. That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. And so God says, here's my plan. I'm going to take a dead man, Jesus, I'm going to make him in charge of everything, right? And so rags to riches story, here it is. And he says, this is the power that God has for you. He goes on to talk about God's power uh, given through Christ over the church. Verse 22, and he put all things under his feet, that's Jesus' feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now, this is a really interesting statement because God has already, Paul has already said that God is in charge of everything, that Christ is over all things. 
which would include the church. But then he singles out the church to say, Christ is over the church. And you may wonder, why, why is he getting so specific? And it's because he's showing us that the one who is in charge of everything is the champion of the church, is the one who is leading the church, the one who is growing the church. And it is through the church that Christ works his power of redemption, of extending his kingdom. It is instrumental in bringing forth his power. I don't know if you've heard any of the church growth statistics. This may be a surprise to you, but we actually live in a time where the kingdom of God is growing faster than ever before in the history of the world. It is estimated that of every person who professes faith in Jesus Christ from the time of Jesus until now, 70% of those people are since 1900, in the past 110 years. 70% of those encountered Christ after World War II. And 70% of those became Christians even since the 1980s. And so the gospel is flourishing. The kingdom is spreading. You may hear stories out of China where Christianity gathering in large groups is illegal and they have over 100 million people following Jesus. That's the power of Christ seen in his church. And what Paul is saying here, as you look in verse 19, it says, this power is towards you who believe. This power is for you, for your access, for you to use in your fight against sin and extending his kingdom and stepping out with courage, knowing that there is power. When Jesus gave the Great Commission, when Jesus said to the disciples before his ascension, he said, all authority in heaven and earth is given to me, right? Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And then the final word is this, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And so he starts this command saying, all authority and power is given to me. And then he ends it by saying, I'm with you always. God's power is for those who believe. And so Paul tells us these things. He prays that we would grow in our knowledge of God's hope, that we would grow in the knowledge of God's inheritance being us, and that we would grow in the knowledge, not just intellectually, but we would experience the power of God in our lives. Let me just end with this. There's a man named J.I. Packer, uh, a famous theologian, awesome man, and he wrote a book called Knowing God, the, the, the same title we have for today's sermon. And he talked about experiencing God intellectually, but also experientially. But he ends his book with this conclusion. He says this, what matters supremely is not the fact that I know God, but the larger fact which underlies it, the fact that God knows me. This is a celebration. This is a joy. This is a wonder. And you can see why Paul would be praying against a stale Christianity towards people who are passionate for a God who cherishes them. He prays that they would know them not just in their head, not just in their hearts, but with their whole being. That they would know his hope, his inheritance, his power, but most of all, that they would know him.
Let's pray. God, as we um, open up your word and understand how you have interceded for us, how you have come to earth through your son Jesus to die for us, that we might know you. What a wonderful gift that is, God. I pray that in the times of our lives where we do not cherish you like we should, that we would remember this passage, that we would remember that you treasure us and that would spur our hearts. It would turn our hearts to delight in you and that coming to church and getting in your Bible and and giving to your mission, God, would not be one of begrudging obedience, God, but that it would be a wonderful and beautiful act of worship to the God who we love because he first loved us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.